Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. It is the possibility of seeing something, the unknown. It's the all about the unknown, that we can go so far. It's like going to the cliff edge. It's like human life itself. It's, it's taking that step beyond, one step beyond to the possibility. And at the end of the day, does it really matter you don't see something? Or do you want to see something and you create it in your own mind that you've seen something? What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of No Blackout Dates. I'm Evan. I'm Tim. And our guest today is coming to us all the way from the Scottish Highlands. Willie Cameron, better known as Mr. Loch Ness, is an expert on the Loch Ness Monster, the legends surrounding it, and previous sightings. He's been instrumental in developing tourism in the Loch Ness area, and he's here to talk to us about the power of myth and legend to generating tourism, not just in Scotland, but in destinations around the world. He'll also reveal whether the monster is real or not. A No Blackout Dates exclusive, but uh, you'll have to stay tuned till the very end to hear about that. That's right, Evan. But before we do that, we've got our hot take section. And I have a good one for you today. I'm actually really excited to get your thoughts on this. So as someone that grew up in the Boston area, surely you're familiar with, you know, the curse of Babe Ruth uh, going to the Yankees and the Red Sox not winning the World Series for many, 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 many years. Uh, until earlier this century, actually. But then they won, and then they proceeded to win again against the Rockies, actually. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on the myths surrounding losing sports teams and what happens to that myth when those teams win. It just happened with the Cubs in 2016. Like, can you still be a diehard Cubs fan after watching them lose for a lifetime and then they win? What happens to that passion? I love this question. That's a door slammer. We haven't had a real good door slammer in a while. I know. This is, this is good. This is something I've actually tried to explain to people, but I don't think people under, really understand. I used to be a huge Red Sox fan, and I just like can't, I can't generate the same kind of enthusiasm for the team anymore that I used to be able to. And the reason, I haven't been able to really pinpoint it, the reason, I think, is that they're winners. Maybe not this season, but in general. I mean, they've won multiple World Series since 2004, and the, the whole joy, the whole thrill of rooting for them to win was that they hadn't won in, you know, basically a century. Yeah. And you wanting to be there witnessing history being made. The same thing goes for the Cubs. When the Red Sox did win the World Series, I kind of became a Cubs fan because I was, that, the year they won, I was so invested in them. And then... I remember watching that World Series, the Cubs World Series, and thinking after my experience with the Red Sox, I don't want them to win. It was, I don't know, I think it was game seven. It was a game, it went to seven, right? The Cubs series? Yeah. Close game. But I remember thinking like this whole time I've wanted, I've been rooting for them. I want them to win. I want the Cubs to win. I want them to make history. I want to witness it. And then when it was on the cusp of happening, I got this pang of fear that said this this can't happen because once this happens, there's no more good myths left in the world of professional baseball the red sox is gone the cubs will be gone what else is there root for does that make me a terrible fan does that make me a good fan i don't it probably makes me a terrible fan 
Well, it's interesting because I feel like I've been a Rockies fan since their inception in 1993, and they're historically a horrible franchise. They've still to this day never won the division that they play in, the NL West. Every time they've been to the postseason, it's been through a wild card. And in 2007, when they had what was called Rocktober, the miraculous run to get the wild card at the end of the year that they ended up going to the World Series, where we got our asses handed to us by the Red Sox, the whole time that was happening, I was watching every night and being like, this isn't, there's no way, this is not happening. I can't believe the Rockies are winning. And then they got there and they lost. So I still have that, that, that kind of passion to hang on to for now. But I wonder if the Rockies ever win, which isn't going to happen until the current ownership sells the team, uh, what will, will I care? Will I still care every summer? Will I still have that feeling every March when they go down to spring training that like maybe this is it? So I'm jealous of you, actually. Like I would, I would love to root for a team that hasn't won yet to be able to witness the first World Series win, because that's something you'll be able to talk about forever. And that that was what 2004 was for the Red Sox, you know, essentially for anyone of this generation, for anyone that's still alive. And yeah. Yeah. So now it's like, okay, if they want, if they were to win this year, if they were to win next year, would that be cool? Would I, if I was watching the World Series that year, would I be rooting for the Red Sox to win? Hundred percent, yes. But would I really have the same emotional investment that I did in 2004? No, not even close. Yeah, that's why I hate Yankees and Dodgers fans right there. Yeah, is that the magic wears thing. off. There's no more magic. Speaking of magic, that's the kind of theme of this interview and of this question that I have for you, Tim. So we talk a lot about the Loch Ness Monster today, and we talk, we talk a little bit as well about tourism in places where Things don't really exist, but we use our imaginations to almost manifest beauty or manifest reality. So what do you think is more up your alley? Mythology tourism based around things like the Loch Ness Monster, King Arthur's Camelot, things that might not exist, might not might not have ever existed, but it's kind of fun to go there and think that these things were real, or movie tourism, visiting film sites, film desk, film locations, um, going to Oxford where they filmed Harry Potter and going to the dining hall where that, that served as the great hall in the movies and being able to say, oh, wow, I'm standing here. I'm standing in this make-believe movie magic destination that I can see with my own two eyes. To me, it's much more fascinating something like the Loch Ness Monster. Like, Listening to so the Willie, thing that isn't there and might never have been there. The thing that or, isn't there, right. yeah. Because honestly, the, the the fact that it might be there, even if it, you know, it's probably not. It's like the same thing with aliens. Like, are they on Earth? I don't know, but I don't believe that they're not on Earth. You know, or or, or not ex in existence anyway. You know, just because I haven't seen physical proof of it. But with a movie, it's a fiction. You know that that's not real. It's a set. Uh, and uh, to me, it's much more fascinating to go to a place where there is a there's a myth and there's a reason for that myth. Right, because with a place like Loch Ness or going to, you know, a castle that might have been the site of Camelot, you're limited only by your imagination. Whereas if you go to a Harry Potter film location, you're limited by what you saw in the movie. Like I remember going to the Christchurch uh, dining hall, which is where the great hall was where they, you know, they eat in Harry Potter. And I stepped into that dining hall and I, you know, you immediately kind of recognize the aesthetic from the movie and you're like wow this is cool like I, i've seen this movie a billion times I, now i'm here i'm standing here this is this is cool but that wears off after about five minutes it's like okay i've seen the movie 
this is where the movie was. This is cool. I'm done. When I on my trip to Scotland recently, we went to um, we passed through the area where Hagrid's hut was filmed, but it's there's nothing. It's just it's just a scene in the movie. It, it, it ends there. You know, it ends at Hollywood. It ends at the at the, the the lens of a film camera. Whereas the Loch Ness monster myth being on that lake, you can imagine centuries to millennia old myths and legends of what might be in the lake you can let your own imagination run wild with what it might be what it might look like you can imagine you could be the first person to ever see it and it it taps into like we talked about in the interview that childhood whimsy of believing in magic and believing in something that isn't tangible that no one's ever seen before that you could be almost the first person to discover and that's something that's hard to replicate that's right that's right but uh Today's talk with Willie is about as whimsical as we get here on No Blackout Dates. So on that note, we will get into it with Willie, and we'll see you on the other side. Willie Cameron is the founder of Visit Loch Ness and has been integral to the development of Loch Ness as a tourism destination. He's traveled all around the world talking about the Loch Ness Monster and its significance to Scotland's tourism industry, and we couldn't be more excited that he's here to talk to us today. Willie, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Eben. Thanks very much, Tim. Absolutely delighted and entirely my pleasure to be able to tell your uh, listeners a little bit about uh, this amazing uh, phenomena that is the Loch Ness Monster, undoubtedly one of the greatest undiscovered myths and legends of the the modern world. So give us some background for those who might not know on the Loch Ness Monster. When did whispers of its existence first start to circulate? When did the sightings begin? And what are some more of the significant sightings? Yeah, well, just to to put you in the picture on a, a sort of geographical basis where Loch Ness is situated, we're on the island of the, that's known as the United Kingdom in the country of Scotland, in the, the very northern part of, of the island. And it's a rift valley that was created um, about 300 million years ago where the land split in two and created a crevasse. When the ice age came over and melted 15,000 years ago, it filled up that crevasse, which is 800 feet deep with glacial water. Uh, throughout the whole, and the, the area is known as the Great Glen, or in the Gaelic language, the Glown Moor. So it was an attractive area for the indigenous people to to gravitate to because there was water. Uh, although the ground was rocky, it was uh, reasonably lush so they could graze animals, grow crops. So these indigenous people were called by the Roman nation when the Romans came to Britain, they called them the Picti the painted ones, and uh, we know them today in the English language as the Picts, and they were pagans. So they worshiped the sun, the moon, the stars, fire, water, but most of all, they worshiped the spirit of this amazing piece of water, 800 feet deep, 24 miles long, and nearly two miles wide. So that is when the story relative to the spirit of the loch, the spirit of the lake started coming out as far as the public domain is concerned, about X number thousand years ago. And it really started to kick off in the modern age when people started to have these sightings of the monster 
in the sixties, right? The, the the real period was in the nineteen thirties, nineteen thirty three to be exact, when the road on the northern shore was built between the town of Inverness and the town of Fort William, right along the Great Glen. When that road was built, it attracted more people to come into the area. So, of course, the myth and legend had always been there with the local uh, people around the lake. But uh, 1933, it really started opening up. And a woman that was the manageress of the Drumna Drocha Hotel saw something very, very strange on the surface of the water. She relayed the story back to her patrons at the hotel. The story worked its way around the lock and it hit the ears of a man called Alex Campbell who was the water bailiff. He was also an amateur hack and a stringer for the local newspaper, the Inverness Courier. So he wrote the story, uh, of course, coming from a respected businesswoman. He knew there wouldn't be any sort of porky pies, that it would be very, very genuine. But of course, he's wanting to make a name for himself as a writer. So he slightly, slightly embellished the story a little bit to make it a bit more attractive for the sub-editor and the editors of the paper. The story was eventually, eventually uh, uh, printed a strange spectacle on Loch Ness. What was it? And the unfortunate thing, poor Alex Campbell didn't even get a credit for it. It was written down from a correspondent. But that was the term Loch Ness Monster was first used in this article. And that along with the general um, consensus of the world at that time would come out of the Great War, the 1914-18 war. People had more time on their hands. They were reading more. They were going to the movies. They were wondering about the world, about them. You know, how big was the world? What was in the world? And there was two books, one by the great American writer Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, the, the Land That Time Forgot, and the other one was by the great Scottish writer Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote The Lost World. You put that into the melting pot along with Strange Spectacle on Loch Ness, what was it? And these two books were about Jurassic creatures. So people started imagining, could there be lands out with their own domain? Could it be in Patagonia or could it be the plains of Mongolia or the steppes of Russia? Could there be Jurassic creatures left from the Jurassic period? So people started really believing, yes, because we've read it in these books. But then the big tipping point came in the movies in the United States with one movie in particular, the movie King Kong, where people were rushing out of the cinema in fear. And then people started thinking, could there be an island? Is it possible there could be an island in the Caribbean, no humans inhabiting it, where there could be gorillas, apes, 20, 25 foot tall, roaming about? Of course there could be, we saw it in the movies. We've read about the Jurassic creatures in the books. So right back to strange spectacle on Loch Ness, 800 feet deep, 24 miles long, you can immerse the population of the world in three times over. There is more water in Loch Ness than there is in the whole of England and Wales put together. So, of course, there could be a plesiosaur or some Jurassic creature left over after the period. Uh, so people really started believing. So then people started moving to the area, coming up to start search for what then became known as the mythical Loch Ness Monster. So I... I think um, around the United States, at least, most people growing up hear of the Loch Ness Monster, but I think there's a disconnect where people don't understand the legend and the story, and they tend to view it. They tend to view people that say they have a Loch Ness sighting or just the entire story in general as kind of like aliens. Like it's just this, like maybe these people are completely crazy. 
what are we missing over here and what do people need to understand that we don't? And not just Americans, but people anywhere. Right. As far as the, the whole myth is concerned, there's been excess of 4,000 reported sightings since 1933. Uh, there is a register of sightings. Uh, Gary Campbell has got a register of sightings. Yes, a lot of them are totally explainable. They're either deer swimming across the loch. They're either wakes, they're uh, vegetation on the surface of the loch, they're, they're, they're timber coming down after a heavy flood or a storm. So you could, you could probably analyze the majority of them and maybe get 90, maybe even 99% as something that's explainable. But then you come into this very, very dark gray area of maybe a half percent or one percent. What did these people see? If it is not explainable, if it is not. Um, now, at the end of the day, the scientists say categorically there is nothing there. There is no Jurassic creature. There is no plesiosaur. There is no giant sturgeon. There is no wheels catfish. The scientists say categorically there is nothing there because they say that the food supply in Loch Ness is not large enough to sustain a creature or creatures that the eyewitnesses are seeing. Okay, scientific fact, park it. But there are stories of people seeing things which are totally unexplainable and when put to them that the scientists say that the food supply isn't large enough. I know one story in particular where the gentleman concerned turned around and said, well, I don't really care what it eats. It could live in fresh air for all I care because I saw it. But better than that, I know now that nine other people saw it. And this gentleman put a legal aspect on the story to say that if there's nine witnesses at an incident who did not collude prior to the event where the story was corroborated by a third party, namely the man that wrote the book about this particular sighting, which took place on June the 15th, 1965, he put a legal aspect on it as opposed to a scientific aspect. And that, again, changed the whole perception. But the whole thing is, even if the, the fanciest scientists tomorrow can give you 100% proof that there is nothing there. 50% of the people are still going to believe there is something there. It's a huge, huge area. It's enormous, enormous. And all you're seeing is the surface. And as I say to everybody, we are only mere mortals at the end of the day. Who are we to say that there is nothing there? And as well, we know, we like to believe in something, the unknown, the extraordinary. We sent a man to the moon. You guys sent a man to the moon, Neil Armstrong. Did he, he came back and he said, there's nobody up there. But I guarantee you, on a good, cold, frosty night, when you come out of the pub or the restaurant and you see that silver ball in the sky, if we could go into everybody's brain and find out what they're thinking, guaranteed nine out of ten will be thinking, is there a man up there on the moon? So it's exactly the same. <laughs> and at the end of the day, if there is nothing there, so what? Well, why don't you mention the sighting in the 60s, 65, I think you said, the longest sighting recorded. Why don't you go into that just a little bit, give people an idea of what uh, what these sightings actually look like and what was what was seen? Well, this particular sighting was June the 15th, 1965, 10.15 at night. And of course, in the north of Scotland, we have almost constant daylight at that time of the year, the land of the midnight sun. And uh, two gentlemen were fishing on the southern shore and one man, another gentleman, was not connected to them at all, was at Urquhart Castle at the halfway down the loch on a promontory that sticks out. 
both parties saw an object on the surface of the water and it was coming with the wind. The wind was coming from the west to the east and uh, both parties saw this object un unknown to each other that they both saw it. The gentleman at Urquhart Castle made his way to his vehicle and drove round on the northern shore following the object as it came with the wind. Two aspects of this. One, it was described as whale-like. It was like an upturned boat. It was about, uh, I think they said it was about 12 to 13 feet in length uh, on the surface of the water and about five to six feet above the water with a bulk end and a narrower end. And it seemed to be rotating in the water as it was moving with the wind. It then got in a line with the Klansman Hotel. It turned, went against the wind and disappeared, which showed it had the, 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 the rotation in the water was described by the eyewitness as n nothing to do with the way the wind was putting it. It was rotating in the water because it wanted to rotate. So that showed it had a mind source. And when it went against the wind, it showed it had a power source. So they're not, these people were not saying that it was the Loch Ness Monster, but they saw something that was very large. They had no fear of it, that had a power source and a mind source and went against the wind. And the period of time they watched it for was about 50 minutes. Now, the, the single gentleman on the, the northern shore had already gathered five other people with them to look at this object. So there was five people we know on the northern shore and the two fishermen got two other people on the southern shore. So there was nine people altogether. And this is where the legal aspect came into it as opposed to the scientific aspect. And the gentleman concerned who said that he didn't care what they ate and uh, it could live in fresh air, as he said. I'm not really bothered what it eats, he says, because I saw it, but better than that, nine other people saw it. And again, this goes back to the legal aspect that there was nine witnesses that witnessed an object that went against the wind, that had a mind source and a power source. They watched it for over 50 minutes. You put the QE2 boat into Loch Ness, you switch the engines off, it's going to go with the wind. You know, it's going to go with the wind until you put the engines back on, it's going to go against the wind. So this put a completely different aspect on the subject. And the reason I know the story, which I've explained to you before, even the reason I know the story, and I know it so well, I was a 14-year-old boy in 1965, and I happened to be there when the gentleman concerned interviewed the fisherman. And the reason I know the story, both from being there, is the gentleman who was the fisherman was my late father, Ian Cameron, uh, who was a retired detective, chief superintendent of police, and regarded as a very, very credible witness because he had been a fisherman since he was eight years of age. He had uh, fought the Japanese campaign in the Indian Ocean flying uh, Sunderlands and Catalina flying boats. He had fished in the Indian Ocean. He had fished off the seas in Mombasa. He had fished up in Norway. He knew about wildlife. He knew about, he didn't, he said this was whale-like. He wasn't, he had no fear of it, but it had a power source. And he was very, very convinced it was something very, very strange. And as he said himself, there were nine other witnesses to it that night a very, very strange experience of that night. I also know other people that have seen things very strange. And again, for gain, fame or fortune, wouldn't come on this programme, wouldn't go on television, wouldn't do a document for fear of ridicule. I know an eminent lawyer sadly passed away now, but there's no way. How could you, how could you go up and defend somebody in court and say, oh, the guy who's defending you? Oh, it's X, Y, Z. Oh, that's the guy that sees the Loch Ness Monster. Come on, let's, you know, sure. <laughs> there is no way, no way. No way it's going to give you much confidence if you're standing in the dock charged with whatever you're going to be charged and your lawyer goes around seeing Loch Ness monsters in the 20th century, you know.
what is it about the legend that fascinates people and will inspire them to not just read up on it or have kind of an academic interest, but to book a trip to Scotland or to take a train to Loch Ness and take a cruise and try to find it for themselves? What is it about that myth? Well, you, you, you've, been up, you've been up to this area yourself. The Highlands of Scotland is a, is a beautiful part of the world. Um, we have all the wildlife. Round, round Loch Ness, as I say, it's 100 miles round by load. It's 24 miles on the water surface, 24 miles long. You can take a boat trip. We have most of the, the prominent natural wildlife of the United Kingdom round these shores. We have uh, nesting ospreys. We have buzzards. We have red kite. We have roe deer, red deer, sika deer. We have uh, pine martens, badgers, uh, all sorts of wildlife, bird life. But at the end of the day, the only thing that somebody really wants to see is the Loch Ness Monster. That's what they've come for. Whether they believe in it or they don't believe it, it's just the thought. But I like to think of Loch Ness as more than a monster because there's lots of other things you can see and do. But at the end of the day, as far as anybody is concerned, it is the possibility of seeing something, the unknown. It's the, all about the unknown, that we can go so far. It's like going to the cliff edge. What do you want to do? Do you want to try and go further? Or do you know that that's your limitation and will not go any further? Uh, it's like going into, as a child swimming, you go out from the shallow end, shallow end. Should I go any further into the deep end or not? It's like human life itself. It's, it's taking that step beyond one step beyond to the possibility. And at the end of the day, does it really matter you don't see something or do you want to see something and you create it in your own mind that you've seen something? It really taps into the this childlike Undoubtedly. awe we have of wanting to believe in magic. Yeah. And even if we, we know the kind of deep down that it might not exist, we still want to believe it exists. Yeah, we we it, know that there maybe is no magic, but we want to believe in it magic. It's 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 like Santa Claus. It's like Bigfoot. It's like the alien in yeah, Roswell. It's uh, it struck me as as funny when I was on the uh, when I was on that cruise, the the Jacobite cruise on Loch Ness, and there's it's crowded with people and everyone's kind of like taking pictures of the lake, and it struck me as strange for a moment that all of these people are on this boat on what might very well be just a completely empty lake with nothing extraordinary in it. Yeah. But yeah. this boat goes out how many times a day with hundreds of people, all of them looking for something and wanting to believe that there is something that might very well not be there at all. And it's a yeah. special and very strange phenomenon. Pre-pandemic, -pre uh, that boat and its sister boat took 300,000 passengers in a year out onto the loch and they do that they've been doing that every year for 20 years that's wow. a lot of people well urquhart castle alone pre-pandemic attracted 500 the castle which is a ruin you know you can't go and check in and sleep or go and have your dinner and get yeah you can go to the coffee shop but it, it attracted about five hundred and sixty thousand. And, and the castle is 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 beautiful to, when you look at it from yeah. the lake like it's a nice it's a great photo spot but when i came back from that trip and people said and i said there's what do you do i said i went to loch ness and we saw a uh, this really cool castle like ruins of a castle the question i got 100 percent of the time wasn't oh cool let me see pictures of the castle or what was the castle like it was 
did you see the Loch Ness monster? Like as a, a half joking, but it's like, oh, that's so cool. You went to Loch Ness. Did you see the monster? So rather than ask me about something that was a physical reality, like I saw this castle, this yeah. castle was cool. It was beautiful. Tell me about it. Yeah. It was, tell me more about this thing that well, the thing probably is, doesn't exist. As the, the, as the locals say here, the castle is just a pile of stones. If it was 10 miles up the glen and wasn't on the shores of Loch Ness, nobody would bother their backside to go and see it because it wouldn't be of any interest. Exactly. It'd just be another castle. And there's hundreds of them in Scotland, hundreds of ruined castles in Scotland. But because it's on the shores of Loch Ness, it's iconic. And it is one of the places that most of the sightings have been seen. The reason being because it's a castle, there's more people attracted to that particular location. We're going to take a short break from the interview for a word from our partners at Matador Network. Are you a travel writer, filmmaker, or an influencer who loves to travel the world for free? Check out creators.matadornetwork.com and explore one of our many press trips. Sign up for free. That's creators.matadornetwork.com. Happy travels. And now back to the interview. So besides the economic impact of all of the tourism, how has... Nessie's legend shaped the region and the people there. What else? Uh, what else would you experience being in the Loch Ness area uh, that the people that live there take for granted? It's it's a great area for publicity. You know, if you've come to Loch Ness and you're going to be doing an expedition or you're going to be doing something, it's great because the press love any story about Loch Ness and the Loch Ness monster. The press love it. The media loves it because. The next picture could be the right picture. So they all live in anticipation. I remember years ago, there was some young schoolboys that were paid £4,000 by a leading newspaper for a photograph of something that looked like very strange. And it turned out it was a cormorant. There was the bulb end of the cormorant, the narrow neck, and it was flying across the surface of the water. It was a great picture. And unless they really enhanced it, but they were paid money by the newspaper. And the headline of that day, is it or isn't it the Loch Ness Monster? Is there a negative to all the attention paid to this kind of small region in, in the Highlands? I mean, obviously, regions benefit and destinations benefit from tourism revenue. But, I mean, people live in this area. You live in this area. Has this transformation and commercialization of the Loch Ness area had any negative impacts on the people that live there? What are the people that live there actually think about this phenomenon? Yes, we have a problem in honeypots as far as tourism on a global basis is concerned. Venice has a problem, Barcelona has a problem. Yeah, we can have over tourism. So you have a problem with parking, too many cars on the road. As far as conscious travel is concerned, um, maybe not such a good idea that there's one million people come to Loch Ness. But from an very early days, uh, the, the local government did not allow any building along the Loch Shore. So there is no buildings or hoardings on the on the lakeside at all. Odd ones here and there, there there's a, a lifeboat station, um, but generally there is no building. So there is little or no commercialization on the shore itself. Oh yeah, this, if this was in the United States, there'd be like 10 story resorts lining the entire lake. <laughs> They'd create artificial beaches. There's no hoardings like you have in the United States, huge, big advertising or anything like that. Yeah, we sell the souvenirs, we sell the cuddly green monsters, we sell the fridge magnets, we sell the, 
well, I call it tartan tat. My business partner likes to call it quality merchandise. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's the way that's the way it is. Everywhere you go, you get you get that sort of thing. But generally, generally, the commercialization is is pretty pretty well looked after. It's pretty tight. But yeah, again, we need again when they bring in a million people, you need more toilet facilities. You need more parking. You need more regimentation of road traffic. And how, how is this a blueprint or a case study in the ability of kind of a local myth, local legend to turn a place into a tourism destination? In April this year, 2022, I was invited to the Myths and Legends Conference in Zamora in Castilla Leon in northwest Spain. Now, there was Myths and Legends from Spain, Portugal, and most villages and towns in Spain have their own myths and legends. There were some great myths and legends from Japan. But at the end of the day, as far as the press and the media are concerned, the story they were only really interested in, delighted to say on one hand, was the Loch Ness Monster. Because it has got global. We have people coming from tourist areas all around the world and ask us, how do you do it? How do you generate 1.5 million income to your area, attract X number of clientele we don't know we do it's not as if there has been a strategy from day one organized about this it has just organically morphed itself happened a sighting a newspaper gets the sighting there's a story you'll get more people more interest i remember a number of years ago at an easter time uh, it was coming up and a, a local italian said to me oh easter's not looking very good this year uh, it's just, it's very quiet with the bookings. There was an advert on television for a chocolate bar and the, the advert was filmed at Loch Ness and the chocolate bar was looked like a hump of the Loch Ness monster coming out, coming out of the water. Now that appeared on a commercial television about a week before Easter. And all it had was the chocolate bar coming up like the Loch Ness monster. The caption underneath was Loch Ness bookings that weekend went through the roof things like the movie the ted danson movie loch ness if that's shown on television guaranteed and it was made in 1994 i think it was released so that's nearly 30 years ago if that was shown on television in the next week 10 days whatever believe you me the bookings the hotels the next week or 10 days will be absolutely full we've had all sorts of personalities we had charlie sheen here we had werner herzog here We've had, you name it, everybody is fascinated. It's just one of these things. And I reckon uh, until they start doing trips to the moon, Loch Ness is going to be, Origer is going to be the place. Once they start doing <laughs> trips to the moon, we'll maybe sort of fall back a little bit. But hey-ho, there may be all these guys want to go and check out if there is a man on the moon. Yeah, no, it, it's, it reminds me, and it's different, but it reminds me of like Harry Potter tours of, filming destinations um filming locations in scotland england wherever or going on you know visiting castles where king arthur was supposed to have lived in in england or this yeah. is where we think camelot might have been even though camelot might not have existed or even this is a little different but doing like ghost tours like ghost tours are a huge industry film film, film, film location destinations is big business as well because i'm involved in, in uh, film and tv work uh too but just to give you an example, a number of years ago, I was involved in a documentary for a company called Wall to Wall Television. And what we did was we did an experiment where 
we put a fence post in the water tied to a pulley. So there was somebody in the bushes that they didn't see. And as one of the boats came into the harbour at the Klansman, when they came off the boat, the fence post was wound up and it came out of the water and stuck up in the water. So when people came off the boat, some students started interviewing the people coming off the boat and said, did you enjoy your trip yet? Did you see anything when the boat came into the harbour? Yes, what did you see? Oh, I saw a fence post. Excellent. Could you draw it for me, please? So they draw a fence post. Everyone, one lady drew the fence post with a head. She drew a head on the fence post. So we told the boy, John, put the fence post back up. Excuse me, madam, this is what you saw. No, no, that's not what I saw. This is what I saw, the drawing with a head. Because she had it in her mind. She had come from Czech Republic. She'd come all the way to Loch Ness on a tour. She knew that she was wanting to see the Loch Ness monster. And that's what she saw. And she would not go back on the bus until she. I agreed with her that that is what she saw. So I agreed with her. People manifest the reality they want rather than the reality they actually see. Yeah. Oh, totally. It's, yes, it's not what, you've, what you have seen. It's what you want to see. And that is a, that is a, it's a, human, it's a human trait that this is what you believe. It's like somebody putting a bet on a horse. They're going to, when they put that bet on, that horse is not going to lose. That horse is going to win because that is their perception. It's going to win. Of course, when it loses, it's proven that it's not won. But it doesn't matter at the end of the day for that short period of their life for the 10 minutes, 15 minutes that the race was running, they thought that horse was going to win. And it's the same as the Loch Ness Monster. We're here at Loch Ness. There is a monster in Loch Ness. I want to see that monster. I am going to see it because I've come all the way from Czech Republic, Azerbaijan, wherever you've come from. That's what I want to see. And so, in, so you convince yourself. In that sense, you've kind of honed in on the on the broad appeal of this of this myth is that it's kind of like a sporting event that never ends, right? Until there's a sighting, then it will end, and everybody will have won. But there's no way to yeah. lose in this, right? It just keeps going on and on because the people keep wanting to believe. Exactly, Tim. And I I keep telling everybody that if the smartest scientists, the most eminent scientists team in the world come up, are they categorically put down point after point after point after point why there is nothing there at all and it is only a figment of people's imagination. I guarantee you 50% of people will accept that and 50% right. of the people will not accept it. So at the end of the day, from my point of view, yeah. I'm in a win-win situation. Yeah. I can't lose. <laughs> can't lose. Well, now that we've heard all the facts, we've got one more question for you. Is there a Loch Ness Monster? Yes or no? Give it to us Absolutely, right now. Absolutely, 100%. 110%. Am I going to turn around to you and tell you, after you've been here, you've seen it for yourself. You were fascinated with the area. It was absolutely uh -huh. wonderful. And believe you, Loch Ness is more than a monster, but there is a monster. Now, it might be something that is not tangible. It might be not something that is that is that you can touch and is solid. It might be something completely unknown to man. I remember somebody telling me once it could be something that was photographed, hence the reason of the Jurassic creature, that it was something that was photographed in time. It went away, and then when it comes back, when the, the, the either the ley lines or the fields of magnetic force or whatever, that this image comes back. You've heard of the stories of the Cavaliers and the Roundheads, people seeing them in the modern age on a field in England, or the Klansmen after the Jacobite Rebellion coming across the moors. I was out on the moor having a hike and a walk. I saw the Klansmen. Of course you didn't see the Klansmen, because 
they were, they were, they were annihilated in 1746 after the Battle of Culloden. But they saw something. So who are we to say that they didn't see anything? So it's exactly the same with the Loch Ness Monster. The truth is out there. And we'll all keep playing the game until we find the truth. The truth is out there. The only problem is, Tim, we can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we can close out. Uh, Willie, thanks again so much for doing this. This is super fascinating. My absolute pleasure. My absolute pleasure. And Where uh, can people uh, find you and how can they visit Loch Ness? And what, what else do you want them to know before we leave? Well, uh, as far as finding, finding me is concerned, it's uh, my email is willielochness at gmail.com. Uh, Forget finding the Loch Ness Monster. Where, this is where you can find Willie. This is who you really want to find. Yeah, if they get in touch with me, I can give them all the stories and tell them. And we have uh, our businesses are based on the shores of Loch Ness here. Uh, we're very, very much involved in the subject. We have our own boat here. We have um, they can come and have a nice dram of good Scotch whiskey. We have our own gin distillery as well. That so was my can... next question: was if I could drink some Scotch with you when I show oh, up. Oh no, absolutely no problem. We're delighted. It's uh, next to the Loch Ness monster. Scotch whiskey is our greatest asset, my boy. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Willie. Yeah, thanks a lot, Willie. Thanks for listening to No Blackout Dates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm Flow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halke, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, Matador Social Crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you.